This is The Coolest Show brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. It's the coolest show you know. Keep the culture connected. It's the coolest show you know. In your ear, yeah, respect the expert level. Information, entertainment, education. Rev here, what got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Cream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your off. Coolest, coolest show you know. It's the Hip Hop Caucus. Everybody, this is Rev Yearwood here on The Coolest Show, along with one of our producers slash host. And she is, you can say yourself there, Tamara. Tamara Tolls O'Loughlin. Glad to be here. I had to have Tamara on, y'all, because I realized y'all don't listen to me when I speak. So I figure if Tamara's on, then you will <laughs> listen to the show. Because every show she's done, it's like through the roof. So I got I had to make sure. But this show I had to make, I knew I was going to listen regardless because we actually had someone who's amazing on and was so excited to have. And that's none other than Peggy Shepard. Peggy, how are you? Hey, I'm great. Great to be on this show. And if you, and I know you're listening right now, wherever you're listening, wherever you are in the world, Peggy looks wonderful, y'all. I just got to say that, you know what I'm saying? Hopefully you can. And a surprise to no one ever. But yes, I can go. Nah, nah. You know, she's definitely, she definitely, she turned up. You just want to let you know that, Peggy. You look, you look fantastic. Well, thank you. It's Indosaki Shange used to say, we dress up. Come on now. <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know that's right. So, so, Peggy, many have heard of you, but please tell us in your own words who is Peggy Shepherd and who is your community? Well, you know, I've been working in the West Harlem community for about 35 years. That's where we got started. It's where I live. And, you know, we really focus on really organizing the most affected residents by environmental problems. Most of them are Black, Latino, uh all over the uptown neighborhoods of East, West, Central Harlem, Washington Heights, and Inwood. And that's where we do our organizing work Um, and our work to engage members in the campaigns that um, are really going to help create a sustainable community. And then we work in Washington as well. And so how I came to this work is I came to New York to, uh, to work in, in magazines, um, and in publishing. And um, I worked for uh, Black Enterprise Magazine. I was starting a new, the first Black Lifestyle Magazine. It was gonna be called Verve. And uh, just before we were gonna publish, Earl Graves decided to buy radio stations and he killed the magazine. So I moved on to be a speechwriter. and then got involved in the Jesse Jackson campaign, his first campaign for for president. Very exciting, mm. helping to develop the Rainbow Coalition, work with young people all over the city uh, who were running as delegates. Um, it was a very, very exciting time. And uh, that really gave me a perspective on the neighborhoods around New York City, uh, the different political uh, engagement in those neighborhoods, and how much uh, the how much having a sustainable community really revolved around advocacy, civic engagement. And I realized we didn't have that level of engagement in the community where I was living. 
And so when the Jackson campaign um, did not win the primary, uh, Bill Lynch, who was the campaign manager and my mentor, uh, said, do you want to be behind the scenes uh, producing other people or do you want to be out front with your own ideas? And so I decided to uh, take that. Some people could see it as a risk. Um, I saw it as an opportunity and really got involved in, in the political uh, life of my community, ran for Democratic district leader uh, with Chuck Sutton, who was Percy Sutton's uh, nephew. Wow. Percy yeah. Sutton ran the Apollo, uh, WLIBBLS radio back in those days. He had been the first, um, he'd been, the, I don't know if he was the first black Manhattan borough president. He might've been the second, but you know, he was a, an amazing iconic figure in Harlem. And so I ran with his nephew and we ran to develop a new political uh, paradigm in, in the West Harlem community, which had really been um, isolated and left out of the central Harlem elected officials, sort of old boy network. And um, we wanted to have a new poli uh, politics uh, on the west side of Harlem. And so we created uh, an independent democratic club. As I was doing that, volunteers and members of my club came and said, there's a sewage treatment plant uh, about to uh, open in the, uh, in the Hudson River about to start mm. operating. Are you going to get us jobs? So Chuck and I went on the radio. We worked to get people hired and we did. We got 30 people hired. And then the plant began operating and it began making people sick. Mm. And so we then began an eight year organizing campaign uh, focused on Mayor Koch, who for, for those of you who are a little older, and your political history um, may know that Mayor Koch was, um, did not want to interact with uptown elected officials. Um, I think he was pretty anti-black. And so, you know, the issues we work on are so, so dependent on the political moment. Mm, and right. so we didn't get anywhere under Mayor Koch. But guess what? David Dinkins... Out, coming out of the Jesse Jackson campaign, the whole Rainbow Coalition momentum, um, that momentum uh, got David Dinkins elected as the Manhattan Borough president and then as mayor. And, you know, he had lived uptown, you know, just uh, up the river a little bit, a few blocks from the sewage treatment plant. He knew there was a problem. When he was elected, he said, there's a problem. We're going to fix it. And so we were off and running, um, holding the city accountable. Um, you know, my father grew up with David Dinkins in Trenton, New Jersey. And um, uh, David Dinkins was my baby, was one of my babysitters for my parents wow. when they were all at Howard University. So, because David was a little younger than my father. And so um, they were all at Howard together and he would babysit for me. So he was somebody I, I, I knew and, and respected. And we were able to, um, you know, have a meeting of the minds on these issues. He was coming from uptown. He had the lived experience. And so that really made a difference. But I went and we had to sue David Dinkins because 
Um, we knew that you sued your baby. <laughs> I sued my president <laughs> because you know he's not going to be there all the time. Right. We needed a mandate. We needed a court mandate on what should happen at that facility, and so we did sue the city. David Dinkins. Um, uh, we had a settlement on the last day of his administration for one point one million dollar environmental benefits fund for the community. He pledged fifty five million to fix the plant, and we were made um, a monitor of the five year plan to fix it. So that's kind of how I got involved. Um, now I know the question actually was, "Who am I?" Um, so I, I would just say, um, you know, a, a neighborhood person. I grew up in a neighborhood as a kid, um, small town. So I have a strong sense of that, wanting to be a part of, of making a difference in that neighborhood, working with my neighbors. So um, I, I love doing what I'm doing. Um, I love being involved in at the community level. Um, but of course, you, we all realize after we're building that strong base in our communities that it's outside forces that are creating some of our issues. So we've got to get involved in local, state, and federal policy because it's those policies that are impacting our neighborhoods. Mm. And so you've seen you know, our work uh, at WE Act of the last 35 years evolve from, you know, stopping the bad stuff and, you know, working to bring good green benefits to our communities and then working to ensure that the most affected people are the ones who are helping to develop new policies that are going to be more protective of our communities. So, Peggy, I want to say one, I think we just uh, started to lay out you know, your, the story that most folks may not know of how you have risen to become one of the most important figures in this work, one of the most sustained uh, organizations in this work, and a network of people who are holding accountability. And just in that last example, you talked about, you know, something I think is really important for this point in the movement, which is that really caring about people and knowing them is not holding them accountable. So that, that point that you mm. raised that you know someone and they move that into part. a space, them moving into that space doesn't mean they suddenly become untouchable because actually that would be letting down the work. So I want to thank you for, you know, just just demonstrating in the work that you do every day um, why it's important to recognize that the strategy is more important than the tactics. Um, I, I also would like for folks who may not know, could you talk a little bit about the founding of we act because I know there were some nuances between the conditions, people needing things, holding responsibility, and then the birth of this entity. Yeah. Um, so again, you know, I had just been uh, elected Democratic district leader. Um, Bernice Miller, Travis, who many of you all know, um, lived down the street from me. Um, she became involved um, in my election campaign and then in our West Harlem Independent Democratic Club, because for the first few years, all of the organizing was done through our political club. And then in 1988, maybe three years or so after founding the club, we realized that we needed to sue the Metropolitan Transit Authority for housing all of like uh, 
30% of all of New York City's buses are housed uptown. And so we figured, well, if we're going to sue somebody, we need a real entity. Um, it can't be a political club. Um, and so uh, we started West Harlem Environmental Action. And um, Chuck, Chuck Sutton named it um, WE ACT, was our acronym. And um, at the time, um, Bernice Miller, Charles Lee, and Dr. Ben Chavis uh, were just publishing uh, Toxic Waste and Race. And Bernice had been, uh, she had graduated from Barnard, which is all in the sort of uptown area. And um, she met Ben and Charles and became a researcher on toxic waste and race. So she was able to infuse that kind of, um, you know, that new data and uh, that consciousness into the work we were doing. And Chuck had grown up in Texas. He's from um, San Antonio. Um, and, you know, he did a lot of work, you know, working in canneries and working with with uh, labor. So, you know, he brought the the justice and the race racism uh, aspect as well. And so... So together, the three of us were um, co-founders of We Act and were able to bring our individual strengths um, to really begin um, an organization, which was a volunteer organization for seven years or so. Um, we never had more than something like $7,000 wow. um, in, in that period of time. And we were able to sue a city sue <laughs> so a, a public authority um, and and get some good outcomes. $7,000. So, um, wow, so, but then, yeah, we decided in 1988 when we sued the MTA, we've got to start an organization. And so we started our 501c3 um, and really began to understand that, you know, in our communities that are low and moderate income, we have a lot of social service groups, but we don't have much advocacy. You know, maybe there was an AIDS group, you know, a few years back. Maybe there's a housing tenant organizing group, maybe. But that's like about it. And so um, we felt that we had to institutionalize advocacy uh, in an underserved community. And it was funny because NRDC um, was our attorney against the city. And when we got the settlement, um, our attorney, uh, Eric, said, well, I guess, you know, you'll give the, the money to uh, the Sierra Club and they'll come uptown and do projects. Mm. And Bernice and I said, no, we're going to start an NRDC uptown. Come on. And so we got a grant from the uh, Environmental Benefits Fund and we hired our first staff. Um, and the first staff member was Cecil Corbin Mark, who some of you know, um, who unfortunately passed away much too early a couple of years back. But um, Cecil was a crucial movement builder uh, in the EJ community, and um, but so we got we started it together, and uh, yeah, we, you know, Cecil said that he just thanked me so much because his his horizons were so expanded 
uh, by the work he was doing at We Act. And of course, for those of you who know him, um, he was everywhere, everybody's friend, facilitating meetings for groups around the country. EPA even asked him to go to to, to Rio and help facilitate some meetings in Plavellas. You know, he was all over and, and wonderful. And for about, he was with us for about 26, 27 years. And um, we would not be where we are today uh, without him and without his his work and, uh, and just his ethic. Mm. You know, Peggy, I can't help but just, you know, look at you and see you get emotional as you talk about Cecil. You know what I mean? And it's the joy, I mean, as you just think about that and think about what he meant as you kind of look back um, in this process, as you look back in your own kind of story, I guess even with that, I guess I just wanted to just ask you this, that as you think about with, with Cecil, as you think about how much he means, but also just from the, this conversation is about can repair, right? And we're going to get into all of that. So, you know, we all knew Cecil, but I have to tell you honestly, sometimes, I mean, since we're are the same age, I feel this movement takes advantage and creates harm. Um, and it's, we shouldn't have to lose a Cecil to understand that. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, as Tamara, you know, expresses so vividly, we have to take care of ourselves um, we have to um, we have to have camaraderie within the movement. Uh, we cannot cannibalize ourselves in the movement and create undue friction and conflict, which does happen, as we know. Um, but how how we take care of ourselves um, really will predict our longevity. And you know, unfortunately, Cecil did not take care of himself as much. And there were a lot of demands, a lot of requests. And, you know, so often we get in this space where, well, if I don't go, nobody of color or any of our communities will even be represented. And so, especially, I think, when we're first getting started, I mean, we're trying to to be everywhere to, um, to really respond to all of the requests. And there's a point... I think now when environmental justice is more, has more visibility, that it's getting very extractive. You know, I have people who I, you know, uh, you know, mainstream groups that I know are getting funded to do certain kinds of work, you know, calling and wanting me to review documents for free. Um, you know, uh, consultants who are getting paid by foundations, you know, calling, well, you know, what names can you give me of people? Can you give me an overview of, of the field? Uh, you know, we're acting as consultants for free every day. Um, I'd say two or three uh, requests a day come from total strangers. Mm. Now, you know, Rev or tomorrow, if you asked me to do something, I'd be there to do it. Um, but we're talking about total strangers not trying to make a contribution, you know, to what we're doing, any of that, um, and, and just extractive. 
And so, you know, everybody wants you to speak in their class. Um, you, know, you know, just every advisory board, it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm sad to see that, that Cecil is not here to see that visibility and some of that success and, you know, the, the investment coming from the Biden administration, the, the IRA, you know, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, millions, billions of dollars coming to frontline communities, hopefully. Um, not to be able to see that outcome uh, is very disappointing for me, for, for him. And for all of our folks, you know, the Damus of the world, um, you know, the Gene Guanas of the world, all of those forerunners, Hazel Johnson, um, who were in the trenches when there was just nothing. Uh, no resources, um, you know, no, no, no coalition building, and um, to see some of that happening now is a joy, but it's also disappointing that so many of our folks aren't aren't here to experience it. Peggy, I want to thank you for naming it. Like I think you have given a really personal and institutional and movement-wide view of how like our failure to lift up how we care for folks, the kind of community that undergirds them has really changed the landscape of folks who could show up for this moment. We've been talking in the episode before this, uh, uh, producer Destiny Hodges really dug in with some of the youth who are having their own versions of these same stories play out. And it's been really jarring to see how much has changed and how much has not. Like, it's really incredible to see how many more people there are in this work um, so much that we don't have to be, that we can even disagree with each other, right? We can have a healthy amount of disagreement that we've never had space for before because we were living in survival mode. Can you talk a little bit about your own experience being one of the very small number of people? You're like the Stevie Wonder of, of EJ. Like, you know, like everybody's out here praying nothing happens, you know, like where, like where, where you have lived through so many of these shifts and changes so much that like going from a survival and defense mode and all the harms that can happen amongst people who largely agree to being in a place where there's actually a plethora of us and moving into that space where we're going to have to figure out how to be able to disagree with each other on the way to the same thing. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, your thinking about burnout these struggles and what it would mean to have the thing we asked for coming into view and the challenges of that. Hmm. Oh, is yeah, that just, all? You know, That's all you're asking? We'll just have, if, if Rev says so, we'll just do another four hours on the cast so you can get this whole answer. For <laughs> well, first of all, I, I would take issue with the fact that we're not still in survival mode. Say that. Mm. Say that. Mm. Okay. Um, we're, we're, we're still in survival mode um, for, for what we believe, for investments actually coming to our communities. Mm. Um, so many of our groups, they're still at one or two people, not, some of them not getting paid. So we're still in survival mode. There's, there's a few groups that you know, may have more capacity, um, and more staffing, but we're all still there. It only takes a few um, uh, foundations not to renew <laughs> or a few donor donations yep. not to come yep. in 
for us all to, you know, wonder if we're going to be homeless, right? So, so I, I would start there. But yes, the movement as a whole has more visibility and therefore more beginning to get more investment as we've had a racial reckoning in this country. But it's really come about from that, not so much from just uh, the environmental values that we should have. Right. It came about because philanthropy realized uh, after the George Floyd murder that there had been a total disinvestment in frontline communities, in groups, as we've known for years. We've seen the studies that one half of one percent of all environmental funding goes to EJ groups um, or goes to women headed groups or BIPOC you know, headed groups. So we, we've known all of that. And you never know when that's going to take another swing, right? It's an upswing now, but it can be a downswing later. And so this is a really important moment. And it is a moment that it would be great if we could be more aligned. But it's, it's important that we do have different perspectives and that we do have different strategies um, to achieve the outcomes that, that we're all trying to do. However, I think, I know Richard Moore said to me, um, you know, some people were saying, um, maybe we should do a convening, another summit. And Richard's like, I'm not sure if we're ready for that. Mm. You know, are we unified enough so that a, a new summit would not be like the second summit? You know, we had a first very... A first summit in 1991, highly successful, developed the principles of environmental justice, mandated people to go home and build that grassroots base. Very, very important. Um, by the second summit, 10 or so years later, not so much. People not coming together. Ethnic groups, you know, black folks and indigenous folks and Latino folks not really seeing eye to eye. Um, you know, having a splinter off so that many of us not talking to each other for almost a decade. And so, I, but I think back in those early days when we had, we must have had 10 or 12 networks that, so almost every geography of the country where there were people of color was in some sort of network or a night or a, a network like an indigenous or Asian Pacific or national black network that Damon Smith um, helped create. And so we really had, even though we had so few resources, by coming together, sharing the knowledge, um, sharing tactics and strategies, you know, working together on campaigns, um, there was some really golden moments there. And I'm hoping that may return, but I'm not sure it will. I think, one, I hear you because one of the things I hear you saying is that there's more than one way that getting together could go. But one of the things that the burnout report proved is, one, that everybody is in a state of burnout. And you and I have had discussions outside of this, this one where we talked about I think one of the reasons why the level of burnout is so high is that the struggle has continued, but the community has fallen off. And so, you know, one of the working theories is that it's never been easy. It's never, we've never been asked to do less. 
But at least there were some points at which people knew your name. They cared about your family. They uh, met you with food. When things were getting rough, people asked you about it and they wanted the answer. And so this report really has talked about the lack of community or a third place that's, that may or may not be a political home where you carry the struggle with other people as you, though you are a person. And so whenever, like Rev and I usually get excited at the same frequency when we're talking about getting people together. There are no, I was with Aisha Sadiq a week ago and we talked about if we both live in the same part of Brooklyn, where are we going to throw the climate block party? Because because we need to do that before we like the me the meetings and the food and the hugs and the good weather is the great is a great place to start to talk about the stuff we care about. And some of that's just being an organizer. But but I think the burnout might not be as sharp and as severe if people actually had a community. And I wonder if somewhere between the first version of the People Summit and the second one. Like it begs the chicken and egg question, do we need to wait until we are aligned to get together do we need to get together so that we can be enough of a community to find alignment? Well, you know, I think what, what I discovered is that, you know, let's come together in some sort of affinity associations. So even though, you know, one of the mandate from the first summit was not to centralize, to have a decentralized movement. Um, you can argue that that has kept the visibility of the movement down. I mean, there are a lot of ways you can argue that. Um, but I, I saw at, at a certain point that the green groups were negotiating around cap and trade um, in Congress, the Waxman-Markey bill, McCain-Lieberman. Um, and so I, Cecil and I sent out an email that said, we would like to convene people who are interested in learning more about climate policy. We're not trying to convene the whole EJ movement. We just want to convene those of you who want to know more about climate. And so we had a convening out in California, about 20 groups came and we started the environmental justice leadership forum on climate change. And it was really because the green groups would not allow us to have any voice on those climate negotiations, because one person said to me, well, if you're against cap and trade, um, we don't wanna you know, have your voice in this particular you know, fight. And so we spent our first few years training all of our groups on climate science, some of the key issues, you know, fallacy of clean coal, you know, all of that. You know, that was the issue then. You know, we weren't talking about some of the energy issues we're talking about now. Um, showing you just how quickly, you know, the topics have evolved, right? And the technologies have evolved. But, um, yeah, we, we just wanted to get everybody um, understanding the policies and then beginning to shape, um, not a consensus, but for people to tell their story to their elected officials in Congress because it was clear that we were going to have, that we had no federal presence on climate policy. And we felt that that was really important. So I say that as an example to say that, yes, maybe there should be some smaller convenings around particular issues that people are engaged in. Um, some of us had a, a, a national building decarbonization convening uh, in Baltimore, um, 
a few months back. And I was stunned at over 60% of the room was uh, people of color mm. groups doing work around the country. Um, I mean, building decarbonization doesn't sound too sexy and interesting, but I mean, you know, on a planet that isn't on fire, building decarbonization is about as hot as you can get. It's the accessory everyone needs. (laughs) You know, soon we're going to have a, a, an educational, um, you know, symposium around a carbon management. Um, there are whole varieties of issues. Um, that we, you know, some, I think in New Orleans, there was a meeting around worker training uh, last week or so. So I, I think that there are opportunities for us to have these smaller coming, uh, coming together where we're meeting a whole new cast of characters and, and organizations that are moving into the very interdisciplinary space of environmental justice and climate justice. So I, I do think we can come together. Yes, that's cool because we're gonna have in, this in, black party, right, Rev? We're gonna do it. Yeah, no, we're gonna have, listen. I was <laughs> listen. You know, I'm over here still tripping off the fact that Peggy's babysitter was David Dickens. You know, what I'm saying <laughs> I'm still, I'm yes. still, I'm still there, and she sued him, and she that's sued right. him for the people. I'm all that's that. Movement. You know I me. Mean? You gotta understand me. When I grew up, you know, I knew about David Dickens through Fife Dog yes. and Tribe Called Quest. Right. You know. Mr. Mr. Dinkins, would you would you please be our mayor? You be you be doing us all a big favor. <laughs> that's that's my that's me. I mean that that's how we came to know uh, using the culture to understand the importance of all that, and that's just shows how much history has gone on. You know, pick as you're talking, I I, I have this. Uh, there's I have a two prong question for you. One, as you know me, I've always advocated. People talk about a, a green 2.0. I've always advocated for a green 3.0, in which it's not about putting people of color into white spaces that actually harm them, but about how do we fund BIPOC, particularly black organizations that are actually doing the work. And so obviously we act is that obviously Dr. Bullard, uh, Dr. Wright, obviously Hip Hop Caucus, the many groups that fall in that line that I actually feel, I think it's part of the helping with can repair is around giving to folks who are fighting for our liberation. Um, but as I'm thinking about that, you know, and as you're talking, I'm also thinking about that over the last few episodes we have been covering, particularly the release of Climate Critical's groundbreaking report on burnout in the climate and environmental sector. So Peggy, with 30 years of hard-won legacy, clearly you talked about that. Can you tell us about what you see happening in the movement among generations of folk working for clean air, clean water, and life on earth, but also this aspect of what it means to fight for our liberation? Are we literally, are we literally in a place where we know that we're doing great work but we're taking on great harm by a movement that is steeped in white supremacy. Well, when you say a movement steeped in white supremacy, you're referring to the environmental movement. Correct. Or you're referring to a broader... Well, it could be and both, but but I'm... The wheel inside the wheel on that It could be and both. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, but... But 
for this conversation, we're talking about the climate movement. Okay. Restate that again, please. Yeah, no, no problem. It's actually written out for me. So I can restate it quite easily. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually the great part about our great produ- producers here. Again, you know, we know what is happening in, in our movement um, and in this process. And so as we're looking back over, particularly your 30 years of hard work, looking back over that, can you talk to us about what you see happening in the movement among generations of folks? working for clean air, water, and life on earth, but also against us fighting for our liberation. Are, are we in a position where we're doing good by fighting for clean air, clean water, but also are we in a position where we're doing bad because we're in a movement that is steeped in white supremacy? Well, I think that you know, my thoughts are working with with youth. Um, we've had some young people um, who have been appointed to the WEJAC, the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council, which is uh, making recommendations to the White House Council on Environmental Quality about Justice 40, um, IRA implementation, and just the implementation of environmental and climate justice throughout government. And it's been very important to have youth there um, to understand their concerns. Um, they may not have had as, as quite as much lived experience. Some do, some, some don't. Um, but they are ready to engage. They're asking the right questions. And they are they're helping some of those who've been in, in these struggles for so long um, to really feel again that consistent urgency and the the urgency to to bring in new leadership uh, to mentor new leadership um, I think that's very important because we have a lot of lessons that we've learned over the last 30 to 40 years um, and there are many ways that um, we don't need our youth to to have to experience um, some of our mistakes if, if we can help that. So I think mentoring uh, and being in the same spaces because, you know, there are very few spaces I'm in where I'm meeting uh, some of the younger folks unless they're right in my city. You know, we have always, because we're in New York City, worked with um some of the large mainstream green groups that um, do feel their white privilege. Um, and because of that white privilege, um, they have been able to um, amass incredible resources, scientific expertise, legal expertise. And so they, they, are, they have made themselves the, the key actors on environmental issues. And that is the reason we had to start our own movement um, because we understand that um, this is really a civil rights analysis of how we're making environmental decisions. And most of the older folks who um, were in the beginning of the movement um, came out of social justice and civil rights movements. Um, but what I would say about that is my concern 
that we've never been able to to align the social justice, racial justice, uh, civil rights groups with environmental justice. Um, I know that in the past, um, there have been uh, foundation opportunities where some of the civil rights groups um, were offered funds to do environmental justice work and did not want to take it. Um, I remember Vernice and I, uh, probably in our first or second year, uh, having started We Act, we tried to have this meeting um, with all of the civil rights and social justice groups in New York. I think one person showed up. <laughs> yeah, our feelings were hurt. Um, but so to me, that, that still remains an important issue um, because the environment is impacting where we live in our homes. People are living in horrendous conditions. You know, it impacts our utility bills, which again goes to affordability and, and gentrification. Um, it affects our you know, work and labor as labor transitions um, from a fossil fuel economy, which has been um, significantly BIPOC. Um, people of color, um, as we transition to a new uh, economy, um, will we bl be blocked out or will these, these monies, you know, coming from the IRA really begin to uh, support our entrepreneurs and, and the you know, small business community? So I think the large green groups have also been uh, impacted by uh, the racial discussions. Um, I think they are beginning to see the conditions um, that so many communities are living in and are realizing that they um, have been ignoring those issues. And so I think some of them are beginning to uh, figure out how to make them their organizations more diverse, but also how to work if we can um, to collaborate around some issues where we agree. So I do see movement there. Rev, if, if that goes to your question. Um, but again, we, we still understand that um, a, few, a few groups have more resources, but the movement is not well resourced. And when we think back at, at the history of the uh, mainstream environmental movement, they had large foundations funding them for 10-year periods of time with mm -hmm. significant funds to get them to a place where they could then take off on fundraising and, and have individual donors. We've never had that support. And so, again, um, we also have to look at it as... Um, intentional disinvestment. Mm, um, then we don't have messy voices, you know, you know, trying to screw up policy, right? Mm, we don't right. have to have those uh, think about other concerns than the ones that they were already thinking about. So, so yes, they've benefited from our lack of, a, of investment uh, in our work. Um, and I think some of them understand that. Well, I don't know if they understand that, but I think some of them um, 
do have a conscience about some of the horrendous conditions um, and and the numbers and the metrics and the environmental exposures and the health disparities. I think big, people are beginning to see the connection. So, and so, so I want to lift up a couple of things that are underlying what you said, which is that you know we talk a lot about violent this violent silence and violent disinvestment that has been central to how environment has created these ghettos for work that involves focusing on racial equity and economics and all of like, because there are no, there are no black and white issues around avoiding being poisoned, right? Everyone should be, everyone should be for children not coming in contact with substances that destroy the quality of their lives or elderly folks having to navigate uh, four or five different disruptions to the otherwise, um, uh, safe and protected in lives just because they happen to be black or they live in a zip code. Like these are things that should be universal focus points that the environment should be for. So the only, if the only difference is that the people are black or the people are indigenous or the people are Asian, then, then we are at a point where there are only two types of group that want to do environmental work, the kind that are for people surviving and the kinds that are not. And so you know, having clarity around being able to argue for those things, but having different points of entry because of time, age and tactical interests and like focusing on what's most um, resonant for you as a person in your community. It feels like so much of the disagreement comes from that. Um, and the, and I think some of the like add to that, that some of the entry points are literally time based. So just in this conversation, you've talked about the arc of some of these stressors and places where their interventions. And, you know, for some folks who just started in the work, they're in the middle of that same cycle where they're entering in at a point where the thing that's most demanding of their time is something that's happening in front of them. And it seems like the answer is if I am young and I call out that someone else is elderly and they haven't resolved it, it will help me prioritize the thing I'm worried about. And we never get to the point where those two groups of people can actually have a conversation where they say, actually, this happened, this has happened four times to date in my work. And here's what we did here. Here's what didn't work there. In the last two episodes, when folks talked about lateral violence, that was some of what they were talking about, is that by not having a respect for the different entry points, we miss each other in the same fight. And as as a person who lots of us look up to and who we interact with in this work, like the best way to build relationship is to work together. Can you talk about efforts that you have made to connect with folks across the multi-generational divide and where that's worked and where it hasn't worked? Because I do think until we get to that, we have too many people running in the same direction, but not towards the same goal. Mm. And, and I think you might, you have a unique perspective there. My Lord. I, I'm going to say that I haven't had a lot of experience working intergenerationally. Um, we work in some high schools and colleges, but those are not necessarily people in the community working in environmental justice. I still find that most of the community folks who are active are older. There is now a younger group that's coming in that, um, some of whom are college graduates with an environmental degree. There's a lot more uh, kids of color with 
some sort of environmental or public health degree um, who are very you know, interested and want to work in this field. Um, so intergenerationally, not so much, but I have been at a couple of convenings with, with younger uh, women especially, and it's been very gratifying to understand their commitment and, and different kinds of just uh, slight nuances in, in their concerns, much more involved in person-to-person collaboration, wellness, uh, camaraderie, I think, than maybe some of the older generation. Yeah. Um, I, I find that definitely. My staff at We Act is probably 70% under 30. So if you consider that intergenerational, um, every day I'm in an intergenerational uh, situation. And certainly um, their, their thinking is a little different. Their, uh, the way they want to work uh, is very different. Um, sometimes there's not as much patience for negotiation. Um, I think... I think we're also finding that thinking intergenerationally, there are a lot of groups that that want to um, that are just no. Uh, if this is not exactly pure and exactly the way I think this outcome should be, then um, I don't want to discuss the issue. I don't want us to be involved in the issue. Um, and that's whether or not the issue is really impacting communities. So I think that comes from an idealism and it comes from a lack of reality that if you're going to be involved in policy work, that means negotiation. I can say as a person, I usually people ask me, how do you know Peggy? And I usually tell the story of of knowing you in three acts. And one was when I was when I was young and dumb and full of ideas and I thought I invented, you know, environmental work because it was a car in the lake at my school. And I was like, ah, I'm going to be an environmental lawyer because the lake needs a lawyer. And somewhere after that, I went to college down the street from the office and I jumped in like, I think I need to work here. And like, you need to go and get more school. And then I came back after graduated from law school. Like uh, I came back again. And like you, you, I'm glad you went to high school. You went to college. You need to go and get more education than that. Came back with a law degree. Oh, we can't afford you because, you know, people don't give us money. You know, and like, so I usually tell the story of our relationship with three acts. And I want people, and a part of that is like personal, but most of it is just about how we get positioned to be able to work together and then get positioned not to. And so I think I'm hearing you say that, you know, like for folks who have an idea of what's wrong, we have given people tools to get an education. We have removed the community from it. And so that, because part of where you learn where to enter in, or even in this interview, you know, there's, there's generations of folks in this conversation. And part of it is knowing when you hear any song, where you come in, where the baselines are, what, what's happening with the beat. And I think that comes from practicing with folks. And so we have an increasingly intelligent, capable, fact-driven group of people who have not been given equal amounts of time finding a groove. And that has ended up with so many people who feel hurt instead of brought into the work. And I think, you know, I remember when I had my shiny degrees 
from the shiny school where everyone eats the granola and does everything environmental all the time, even when they're sleeping, sleeping on the organic mattress with the clothes that offend nobody and thinking, how am I going to explain that the same people who passed the hat to get me into school that have changed me into a different person? Like, where's the re-entry program for my own community so that the thing y'all sent me to do, I can do it, right? And so I think it is relationship. And like, we're talking about it. We are calling for it. And, and I think we've moved to a place where we finally have strategic power. We just don't have strategic relationships that can make it matter at a moment where we really need it. So, so I would love to hear from you, Rev, just about, you know, where you see that as folks who have been operating in this space throughout these cycles. For folks who were in it for the first time, trying to figure out where they go to re-enter the community that sent them there. Well, you know, you know, you mentioned one thing that I think is really important that I've found, and that is, yes, people are coming back with degrees. And I had an organizer once, he didn't work out, but he was an organizer's organizers. And he had, he had just started with us and he was talking to some of our staff and he said, you know, some of your staff has a very romantic idea about organizing. And you know, and he was right. We get a lot of people, you know, young people right out of school and they want to work in a community-based organization. But what you find is they don't really want to work with community. Mm. You want to work in a community-based organization, but not with community residents. My Lord. It's too hard. They don't understand these issues you know, we have working groups around climate justice and energy and, you know, public housing and a variety of groups so that community residents can um, can help us, you know, can help direct our work on those issues. And, you know, you'll get to some staff who will say, I mean, they're not still with us, but, um, you know, this is too difficult for them to understand, well, then you're the wrong person because we can make all of this understandable. Um, and then, you know, people who want to do the policy work but don't want to have to explain it to a community resident or to a community organizer. And so I'm seeing that dichotomy um, that that's at work. And then um, I think that it's... I think that we need to develop more of a mentoring program. I remember a friend of mine, Danelle Wilkins from the Green Door uh, Initiative in Detroit, um, when she first became, when she first started Detroiters for Environmental Justice, she was in a program where they paid for her to come somebody to shadow for a week. And so they paid for her to come to New York and come to my organization and be with us every day. And I love Danelle. She just says that that made such a difference. Uh, I still don't understand the total difference, but she said it made such a difference to have been in another organization and watched how they worked and interacted. And so we don't do enough of that sharing and understanding how we work. Um, sharing of tactics and strategies. I remember I was saying something to a young person about um, uh, that I was 
going to a particular fundraiser event. And she's like, why are you doing that? And I said, because that's where all the people are who you need to meet and who you need to be asking and, and demanding some accountability from. They're all in that room. <laughs> that's why you should go. Um, so just, uh, you know, every region, every city, every locality is different. But I think for young people who are just starting out, um, they really do need to be um, interacting with some of us who've been around a little longer. Um, you know, not to co-opt them, but to be able to answer any questions or, you know, how to get started. Um, you know, every year that goes by, it's harder to start to do a startup. I mean, it's basically a business. A group is a business. You know, you got to have a Xerox machine, right? You got to have a telephone. You know, know, it's a business and you got to pay people. And we need to teach each other how to do that. And do that effectively. I mean, we all do it, but effectively. I'm going to let Tamara kind of ask these last questions on the story of the future. Cause I think as this arc comes out, I, I know we, cause I know we, we I, did, I knew this time would go fast. <laughs> like, I just knew it. I knew this time would go fast. So I want, I want to give Tamara to, to really let her get her thoughts around some of the final questions. So this may be my last question for you, Peggy. Um, but it's a doozy, but it's, it's, it's in one I think it's important cause you know, I was also, you know, my, my babysitter <laughs> was was Dr. Beverly Wright. So, you know what I mean? So so I, I know what is what it's like to have someone in that position. But we've actually had some later on in life, some real good conversations. And one of the conversations is this. You know, I actually look to you, um, Dr. Bullard and Dr. Wright, as as those who've created institutions that are able to do some amazing things. Me, myself, having worked with the creation with Hip Hop Caucus, which is tomorrow's a part and the producers here and many others are part of, has now itself turned 19 years or is turning 19 years. And next year will be 20 years, right? Which is an amazing success. And it, and it has you know, a number of employees and different platforms. But this is the thing, though, because I mentioned that um, one of our producers, I won't say which one, it's not me, wasn't, was, wasn't that much, much older than when the caucus, when it was created back in 2004. So they have, we have folks now who were themselves, you know, babies when this was created. Um. I realized recently when I was asking myself what it means to be a good ancestor that sometimes I think that I don't cause harm myself. That I think because I am a black liberation in the movement that it only comes from white people and not from me. But I realized sometimes as you get older, you can cause harm and you can put people in a position where they feel burnout. Have you ever been in a position looking back when you think, man, what we did might've caused harm ourselves. 
And what we can do as we are now getting older and bigger, not to replicate what was done to us by other institutions. Well, I, I certainly feel that, um, I certainly feel that, that, that Cecil was certainly harmed by so much of the work that, that we took on. Mm. Uh, I, I definitely feel that, especially when you're not taking care of whatever underlying health issues you m might already have. So I, I definitely do think that, um, that he was at burnout at many points in time. And I, and I do see that with other um, people in the movement. You know, sometimes you'll call people, you can't reach them. Um, they're here and there, and it's because it's too intense for them. You know, um, so I, I do know that that the work and the urgency of the work and the uh, the unrelenting nature of the issues um, certainly does create burnout. Um, I hope I have not <laughs> harmed uh, anyone uh, in terms of that. Um, I think there are other organizations that um, are extractive and exploitive of environmental justice groups and help perpetuate that harm uh, without providing any benefit, any mutual benefit. Um, so I guess that's what I, w I would say to, um, to, to that question. But I also have to say, and I I'm, I'm guess I'm just going to be different on this one, that there's no Nobel Prize winner who ever worked nine to five. And I just frankly don't believe that. I think it's very hard to achieve great things. I think it's very hard to, to, to develop a startup and keep it going um, without giving up 200%. And I know that it's not <laughs> tomorrow. I know that that's antithetical to, uh, to your philosophy, but that's what my experience tells me. And yeah, that's what my experience tells me that it takes to be successful. And however you define that, it will take everything. I, I would say that I I think that it takes everyone. I don't know if it will take. I don't think it should take everything from anyone. And I think it takes all of your energy, your intellectual capacity, um, if you really want to make something happen, and especially make something happen in this world, <laughs> in 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 a, in a low income community, and you've got to speak truth to power. To make that happen, and sometimes it's got to happen on a daily basis or a weekly basis. I mean, right now, just the craziness going on in Washington. I mean, everybody is like, I mean, look at your email. <laughs> it's every second. Testify, my inbox is yelling at this right now. <laughs> I mean, everybody's doing a letter about the the debt ceiling, and I just got an email like. I got 10 more people signed on to the letter. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's intense. 
That's intense. Um, so I think what does help burnout is being able to come together with like-minded people. Um, even if it's not in Jamaica to, at the <laughs> beach, um, I, I just know when I'm in those kinds of groups, I leave inspired. I leave inspired when I, I'm with fellow colleagues. And I think we need to do more of that. Um, one thing that I do know that um, mainstream white folks generally do is they do a lot of socializing. They do a lot of making decisions at social events or you know, outside of the office. And I don't think we do as much of that. Um, and I think that some of us are not good collaborators. And I think as more resources, you know, when there are less, less resources, a lot of people are at each other because of that conflict. And well, if you have more resources, it must be because you're doing something that's negative, right? You know, so it's, you know, and when you're in small communities, you know, so few groups have anything. And I don't mean just the environmental community, that if you're doing okay, there must, you must be corrupt in some kind of way or something's wrong with you, right? And, you know, that's, that's part of the movement as well. Those, those internal um, issues that we just haven't come to grips with. Um, that's inter-ethnic and interracial, even though I think the EJ movement has been one of, um, you know, one of the few uh, really diverse, um, intentionally diverse movements from the beginning um, that perhaps isn't quite there at this point. Uh, the way it was. Um, so I think that's something we have to be intentional about, that we're not. Um, I think the interracial issues are very important because so much of this work is political. Um, we all need to be developing C4s. And, you know, if black and brown people aren't working together politically, um, if we're split, the progressive side is going to lose. So, so I think the work you're doing tomorrow, um, Jackie Patterson, bringing people together, you know, at first I was like, oh, what yes. is this? Oh, it really? was the friendliest skepticism I've ever seen. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> you know, nice and friendly and, you know, touchy-feely, um, but, but it is restorative. Well, I hear that. And I, I want to thank you. I want to ask the final question, which is, you know, you are in a lot of places. And in just this conversation, we talked a little bit about what I'm hearing from you as a formula, which is that the work is not ever going to be easy. It's not ever going to require any less of us, but we can ramp up what we're doing to support each other. What are the things that, are that you experience, you talked a little bit about getting together and socializing and being on beaches where being black is nobody's crime. I hear some of that in your answer about what we could do. How do you envision 
the succession of the work that is your life's work that, and how does it include some of those elements? Cause I know, you know, there are always people who figure out how can I work with you? How can I help? What is your answer to those folks who want to come behind you, come beside you and make that vision true? And how do we do it in a way where we don't injure each other? Well, you know, I, I think um, I, I reached out to you at one point because I was thinking, you know, we need some we need some other kind of thinking out of the box. We need some people who aren't so close to this. We are an interdisciplinary movement, but we're not really. And we are because, you know, transportation, housing, you know, air quality, water, blah, blah, blah. All of that links up to a safe, sustainable community. But we don't work with those groups, except, oh, God, there's a grant and I, I need to have this partner. But we're not, we're just so siloed. Um, and so when I reached out to you, I thought, well, maybe if I bring six or seven, um, you know, colleagues from different, you know, not totally different, but, you know, from, from different arenas uh, that we can come together and have some ideas about how we could move forward with a broader movement um, because we need the resources of the big time housing groups, right. you know, who are in our communities developing housing because we're the ones talking to them about energy efficiency, about mold and, you know, and housing conditions. So exactly. I mean, so we have, there is a synergy or there should be, and we just have, um, have not intentionally, I think, worked to, to create those, those collaborations. And I think that's, what's going to, I think that's the kind of movement I see going forward. Um, that is much, um, broader, you know, when you think about how we get the IRA money and the J40 money into our communities, we're, if it's just three or four EJ groups, I mean, we, we need a housing group. You know, we need a, an energy efficiency um, or solar group. Um, we need all of those groups to collaborate um, because we don't have all the resources and expertise we need. But it's there in a community. Yeah, it's there in our city. Um, if we can just tap into it and pull and 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 really provide the leadership so that everybody understands what's in it for them, uh, I think is is really where we need to go uh, in the future. Much broad broader base. Well, I hear you saying community, and I hand it back to Rev because nobody closes like him. <laughs> No, I think I just, this was an amazing conversation. Definitely want to thank our guest today, Peggy Shepard, who is our guest today. Peggy, and she's the co-founder and executive director of WE Act for Environmental Justice. And we are... The cool uh, team. <laughs> no, I, I like that. But, but tomorrow, for the same we are... We are tomorrow. Uh, uh, Got to see a name there tomorrow. I'm tomorrow. <laughs> and I'm Rev Yearwood, <laughs> your host of The Coolest Show. It's really a cool show. Thank you, Peggy. Appreciate you. Bless you. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at 
Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know. It's the coolest show you know. 